Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, a podcast created and funded by Acure Insight. Here, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatment, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Thanks for joining us today, and I hope you'll be back soon. Hi, everyone. My name is Nalani Pearl Hunt, and I'm here with Acure Insight. We are hosting a conversation with Dr. William Harbour of Bascom Palmer in Miami. So let me introduce first Melanie, who is the Executive Director of Acure Insight. Hi, Melanie. How are you? Hi, Noelani. I'm good. Thank you so much for being our moderator MC person today. I really appreciate it. And thanks everybody who's joining us. Um, Dr. Harbour is going to give a great, a great talk and answer your question. So uh, I'd like to introduce Dr. Harbour from Bascom Palmer in Miami. I'm sure most of you know him, but he's a, an expert and in ocular oncology and genetics for ocular melanoma. Good evening, everyone. And thank you for joining us this evening. And uh, I thought I would give a brief update uh, on what's happening in, in ocular melanoma genetics. Um, and I know that uh, people have uh, asked a lot of questions about PRAME and about, um, about upcoming studies and things like that. So I've tried to focus this uh, brief talk a little bit, um, but I'm happy to answer questions uh, after we're finished uh, with the talk. So this is my disclosure. Um, as all of you, I'm sure, know, uh, uveal melanoma or ocular melanoma uh, is the second most common uh, form of melanoma and the most common cancer of the eye. Um, <clears throat> the, the real problem with this cancer is not the treatment of the primary tumor in the eye. Uh, we're pretty good at that, although, unfortunately, there can often be vision uh, loss from that but usually we can successfully kill the tumor in the eye, but often it shows up later uh, somewhere else in the body. And the reason for this is what we call micrometastasis, that um, you know, sometime in the past, the tumor started to develop in the eye. It was asymptomatic. Um, nobody knew it was there. And, and, it, and it started to get out of the eye into the bloodstream and go somewhere else, let's say the liver, and then sometime after that happened, we actually detect the tumor in the eye and treat it. But by that time, the cells are already out in the bloodstream and in the liver and elsewhere, perhaps. You might say, well, you know, I got a CAT scan when I, uh, when I was diagnosed and they didn't find anything. Well, that's very common. 98% of the time, we don't find anything when, at, that, at that time when your eye uh, ocular melanoma is diagnosed. And that's because um, a, a very tiny little colony of cells uh, can live for a long, long period of time in the liver or somewhere else where it's too small to be detected. Um, and then sometime, you know, years later, after the primary tumor in the eye was treated, then it shows up in the liver or somewhere else. So if you think about this, there's really two main ways that we could uh, get around this problem. One way is that we would treat the, the tumors earlier before micrometastasis occurs. But, and certainly, you know, we're all trying to do that more and more to, you know, to see, uh, to diagnose ocular melanomas when they're smaller and to treat them. The problem is when you, the smaller the tumor gets, the more likely it is to be benign. 
uh, to be a Nevis. Um, and, and, you know, there are many hundreds of thousands of people in the United States with a benign nevus in their eye, a choroidal nevus, if you will, that don't need treatment. Uh, and there's only a small, it's a needle in a haystack problem, right? There's only, only one out of every, you know, th a thousand or so of these nevi that actually need to be treated. So we don't want to go around treating everyone with a nevus. You know, treatment has side effects. Uh, we can cause complications, vision loss, et cetera. So we don't want to be treating everyone with a small uh, tumor uh, unless we have a very good idea that it is a small melanoma. So one very active area of research is to identify better biomarkers, um, uh, uh, eventually, hopefully, liquid biomarkers that don't require a biopsy so that anybody with a, a nevus in their eye or, uh, you know, possibly a small melanoma, we could do a liquid biopsy and say, aha, this is not a nevus, this is a melanoma, we need to go ahead and treat you uh, while this tumor is small. Um, that's the subject for another uh, talk that I'd be happy to give in the future. We're actively working on this, um, but the, the, the focus I want to have today is on adjuvant therapy. This is where we are most of the time today is, you know, by the time we make the diagnosis of ocular melanoma, um, some patients already are going to have micrometastatic disease. And we'd like to not wait until it blows up in the liver or somewhere else, and then we have a big problem on our hands. We'd like to try to nip it in the bud when it's only a small colony of cells that um, we can't detect with CAT scans or other imaging, but we, um, but we could put to sleep uh, early before it has a chance to grow out. So if we focus on this adjuvant therapy or preventative therapy approach, there's really two things that you need. You need a very accurate biomarker to know who probably has micrometastatic disease because uh, our best estimate is probably no more than 35 to 40%, maybe 50% at the most, actually have um, micrometastatic disease. The others probably don't at the time uh, of, the, of the, uh, the treatment of the primary tumor. So we don't want to treat everybody with a drug that has side effects if only half of them really need it. So we need an accurate biomarker, and then we need, an, uh, we need a safe and effective drug. Both of these have been a challenge. We've largely tackled and, and, and uh, succeeded in the first uh, aim here. Um, what, uh, what most centers uh, in North America are using is a gene expression profiling. Um, this is a, 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 an invention that uh, my uh, group made uh, over a decade ago. Um, this, uh, this test is provided through Castle Biosciences uh, the Decision DXUM test, which is the gene expression profiling, and then the PRAME test, which has been added to that. And we'll talk about that. Now, why is this uh, the state of the art? Well, number one, it uses a microfluidics technology, which means that we need a very tiny sample. We don't have to uh, do a big um, biopsy that uh, is dangerous uh, to the eye and to vision. We can do a very tiny needle biopsy. And the other thing is, some of you may have heard of artificial intelligence. Um, uh, machine learning is a type of artificial intelligence. We developed this uh, 15 years ago before most 
people were thinking about artificial intelligence. And that's the technology that this uh, technique uses. Um, so we have minimal sampling error. Um, it really captures a, a, um, a, a, a snapshot of not only the cancer cells, but the immune microenvironment, which we'll talk a little bit about. Your immune system is very important in your ability to fight off cancer. And to this day, this is still the only validated test that's been looked at prospectively, meaning enrolling patients going forward and then predicting how they're going to do and then showing that yes, indeed, the test predicted accurately how they were going to do. Now, um, originally the test, and this is just uh, um, illustrative data, this is not actual data. But you know, when we looked at patients over a very short period of time, let's say over the first 35 to 40 months, almost nobody with what we call a class one tumor developed metastatic disease, whereas those with class two tumors had a very high rate of metastatic disease, meaning that the, the, the slope of this curve goes down quickly. With longer follow-up now, you know, approaching 10 years or more, we do see that some class one patients do eventually develop metastatic disease. But, you know, the, the good news here also is that these curves level off after a while. Even if you're class two, if you make it out a certain number of months, um, not everybody eventually develops metastatic disease. It does level off after a while. Now, why that is, we still don't know, but there is hope, um, you know, even if you have the bad genetics. Now, what we looked at, though, in this curve is, you know, this is really helpful to know if someone's class one or class two, but is there any other marker that can help to tell you, for example, if you're class one, you know, do you have kind of an intermediate risk of metastasis or can we split this into those with minimal risk versus a more intermediate risk? And that's where PRAIN came in. We looked at a number of different markers and what we found is that PRAIM adds additional precision to the uh, prediction that we can get or the prognostic information we can get from gene expression profiling. And again, what we the class one versus class two, that's the decision DX UM test or the gene expression profile test. But when we then subgroup class one and class two by the PRAIM status, then you further separate out these groups. So if you're class one prime negative, you have a very, very low risk of metastatic disease, not zero, but very, very low risk. Class one prime positive, it's higher, still very good prognosis, but, but most of the metastatic events that occur in class one patients are in this class one prime positive group. And then similarly for class two, if you're class two prime negative, you have a better prognosis than if you're class two prime positive, meaning the risk of uh, metastasis developing within the next, you know, five to seven years. Um, now, there are certain uh, mutations that go along with these um, that I'm sure you've heard about. The most important is BAP1, BAP1, um, and BAP1 is located on chromosome three, and you may have heard of people talking about monosomy 3 being a risk factor. Well, the reason monosomy 3 is a risk factor is because that's where BAP1 is located. And when you lose BAP1 and chromosome 3, then that's what makes you a class 2 tumor. So these are not different altogether. The monosomy 3 is not as accurate 
as the class two in general because it doesn't capture the immune microenvironment and all that. But you're still talking about the same uh, class of tumors, the class two tumors. Um, so, you know, I'll introduce here the Collaborative Ocular Oncology Group, which you've probably heard me talk about before if, if you've heard me talk. This is a group that we started uh, over a decade ago, and it is the group that prospectively validated the class one, class two uh, test. And then we've gone on uh, to do the second study of the, of the Collaborative Ocular Oncology Group. And probably some of you, if you're patients, will have participated in this, where we have centers all across North America, uh, you know, United States and Canada. And in this study, we are not only doing the, the gene expression profiling at, and PRAIM, you know, but we're also doing these mutations, uh, the BAP1 that I mentioned, and these other mutations that go along with uh, class one or class two. And we're also looking at the chromosomal changes that some people uh, are using instead of gene expression profiling. Um, but, you know, so far these have not performed as well uh, as the gene expression profile. And we're, we're looking in great detail to see, you know, if there's any other information we can find other than the class one, class two, and the PRAME that further gives us information that will help patients. And we think that this mutational information is going to be very important because very soon we're gonna have clinical trials available for patients who are either high risk or they have developed metastatic disease. And those clinical trials often are going to require that we know whether a specific mutation is present because that mutation might mean that a particular drug is gonna be more effective. So hopefully in the very near future, from a single needle biopsy of, the, of, of that ocular tumor, ocular melanoma, a diagnosis, we're gonna have all of this information. Um, and we're gonna be able to you know, tell a patient what kind of risk group they're in, what mutations are present, what um, medications they might, be, they might benefit from, what clinical trials they might benefit from. So just to give you an idea what I'm talking about, a big uh, uh, emphasis in my lab right now is that this BAP1 uh, mutation. As I mentioned, this is the most important mutation um, in uveal melanoma or ocular melanoma because if the, you have this mutation, this is most of the risk for metastasis comes from having a mutation in BAP1. And it's a mutation that destroys the protein so that it doesn't function properly. And this is just to give you an idea of all the research that we're doing We've gone from uh, drug screens uh, in, in petri dishes to working in frogs, of all things, uh, to screen for compounds. And then we've taken our top compounds and we put them in, in animal models. And we found uh, one particular drug called Quisinostat, um, which has a very, very strong effect against class II uh, uveal melanomas, we can see that it really stops them from growing uh, in an animal model. And uh, based on this uh, data, um, we have uh, gotten uh, grant support and other uh, sources of funding to start a clinical trial. And this is in conjunction uh, with my uh, uh, partner, Dr. Jose Lutsky. We're both at the University of Miami, Sylvester Cancer Center, uh, I see my patients at Baskin Palmer Eye Institute, 
Uh, and then just down the street, Jose, uh, Dr. Lutsky sees his patients at Sylvester uh, Cancer Center. And we work very closely together. And um, this trial that we will hopefully have up and running pretty soon will be for class two patients. We're not gonna distinguish prime positive and prime negative at this point. We think that both groups are at sufficient risk that um, they would benefit potentially from uh, an adjuvant uh, drug. Now, the thing that's so um, important about this is that this is a pill that can be taken at home. Uh, it's well tolerated. It has manageable side effects. And um, those are two of the key ingredients that we need in the adjuvant setting. We don't want patients that are otherwise healthy uh, having to fly across the country to get an infusion or something like that uh, when they're doing well, but we just know they're, they're at higher risk. So the idea would be that this Cuisinostat would seek out that little cluster of micro metastatic uh, tumor cells and put them to sleep uh, so that they don't grow out. So stay tuned. Uh, this trial should be uh, up and running uh, fairly soon, and uh, um, we'll be going from there. Now, um, just an example for Prame, uh, this is um, going to be uh, uh, another area of increasing interest. You know, about half of patients with high-risk ocular melanoma have positive Prame. Okay, so it's pretty, pretty common in that group. It turns out that for Prame, a lot of cancers uh, express Prame. Prame is something that only should be expressed in um, sperm, spell, sperm cells, actually. They should not be expressed in the normal adult cells in the body. So somehow cancers uh, inappropriately turn on Prame and it wreaks all kinds of havoc. And other cancers uh, use this trick as well. So because it's um, a, a, a something a lot of cancers uh, have, this has um, attracted the attention of pharmaceutical companies, uh, which have uh, started developing a lot of different, very sophisticated treatments against Prame. And these are mostly immune treatments that, that target, uh, just as we take the vaccine to try to kill the coronavirus or the flu or other viruses, we can train our immune system to attack cells that are expressing Prame, just as if it were a virus. And, um, you know, one example of this is the Immunocore company. Some of you will be familiar with Immunocore and the GP100 uh, um, compound that is soon to be approved for metastatic ocular melanoma. The same company, the next product they're developing is a, is a product targeting Prame. Uh, and there are other companies working in this area as well. So, you know, hopefully pretty soon we'll be able to target uh, tumors based on their PRAME status. So um, just to kind of close up my formal talk and, and leave plenty of time for question and answer, I just want to talk a little bit more about this collaborative ocular oncology group. We really believe this is the way that patients are going to be best taken care of going forward. Instead of having to you know, fly across the country to some big center somewhere. Um, we've put together a network of leading um, ocular oncologists, uh, such as uh, myself and people at Duke and in Texas and Stanford and uh, Harvard and all over. Um, we're going to do the same thing with medical oncologists, and we've already started this. So a lot of the leading medical oncologists 
um, like Rich Carvajal and Takami Sato and Dr. Lutsky here and uh, um, people across the United States that really are leaders in uh, medical oncology for U of M melanoma, they're now part of this group as well. And we're gonna all work together uh, to, to make it possible for patients to get world-class care for their eye and for their body for the metastatic disease or high risk for metastatic disease in, uh, in your region. So this is, um, we have a website uh, and you're, it's still uh, kind of under construction but you're welcome to go take a look at it. Uh, it's coog.life. And this is the current uh, uh, um, uh, roster of uh, uh, doctors. They're part of the collaborative ocular oncology group. It does not include the medical oncologist yet. This is just the ocular oncologist, except for Dr. Lutsky here. He's the only medical oncologist. The rest are ocular oncologists. And I'm sure some of you will recognize your doctor in this group. And this is the group that's really going to push the envelope going forward. And those of you who have participated in this uh, study, um, I thank you because this is the way forward um, for us to um, really discover new uh, treatments and better uh, care uh, of patients. So uh, on behalf of uh, Dr. Zelia Cohea and myself, uh, who uh, direct the Ocular Oncology Service here at Bascom Palmer, I thank you for your attention and I'm happy to uh, take questions. Well, great. Thank you for that great presentation. We appreciate that. Um, so I have a couple questions that we got in beforehand, and I'm going to say just first of all, um, I'm not a medical professional. So if I um, just slaughter some of these names, I greatly apologize in regards to that. So the first question that we have, uh, Dr. Harbour, is, when do you think a liquid biopsy test will be available for ocular melanoma genetics? Great question. Um, and this is uh, at the forefront of the research in my laboratory at the, at the moment. So there are different kinds of liquid biopsy. There's a liquid biopsy um, of any liquid in the body, right? So the two liquids that we would be most interested in in ocular melanoma would be the ocular liquid itself um, and this could be the, what we call the aqueous, which is the watery fluid in the front of the eye, or the vitreous, which is further back in the eye. Those would be the two ocular fluids. And then, of course, blood. Um, and the way I see it, these two are going to uh, be different but complementary roles. So I would see the aqueous or the ocular biopsy as um, being a um, a supplement to a tumor biopsy. So in patients who we're not really sure if they have an ocular melanoma, we're not sure if it's a nevus or if it's an early melanoma, you know, there are a lot of patients like that out there. I probably have 10 or 20 patients like that for every one that has a definite melanoma. So I don't want to have to do a needle biopsy on all of those patients. Um, so if we could do a, a liquid biopsy of the eye, which we can safely do in the office without taking you to the operating room or anything like that, then that would allow us to maybe identify the patients at high enough risk that we really should go ahead and do a tumor biopsy in the operating room. So that's one area that we're developing. The other area would be a blood liquid biopsy. That's what a lot of people think about when they think of a liquid biopsy. 
There, I, I see the role for a blood liquid biopsy as playing a different role. I don't think, you know, I, I showed you from a needle biopsy of the tumor, this amazing amount of information we can get. We can, uh, all this prognostic information, mutational information, this and that. There's, I don't think we're ever gonna have that amount of information that we can get either from the blood or from the ocular liquid, but they can tell us other kind of information. So for example, in the blood, if we have a patient that we know is at high risk based on class two or prime positive and that sort of thing, then we can monitor their blood uh, for evidence that that little micrometastatic disease may be starting to wake up. Um, and then in patients who get therapy, do we see the liquid biopsy showing that the disease is going away? So I see that all of these are playing a complementary role. I don't, I don't really anticipate that a liquid biopsy is going to replace completely a tumor biopsy, but they play complementary roles. And I would, I would, uh, I mean, people are doing liquid biopsy on the blood now. Um, that these are available clinically. The problem is that the tests that are available now are not designed for ocular melanoma. They're designed for very common cancers like lung cancer or breast mm. cancer. So they're not really optimally suited for ocular melanoma patients. But I would say that within a couple of years uh, that there will be um, uh, tests that are specifically designed for ocular melanoma patients. Thank you. Uh, Trisha Smith is actually watching right now is saying, what about those of us who are diagnosed before they were testing the tumor? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a couple of things that um, that can be done. And, 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 and actually, that is a great role for liquid biopsy, uh, particularly blood biopsy, because, um, you know, once you've uh, either had the eye removed or you've had radiation, those are the two most common treatments for uh, ocular melanoma, then the ocular liquid biopsy we're not really sure how that's going to work, right? Because we, for the ocular liquid biopsy, we need the tumor cells to be elaborating something that we can measure. So uh, in that setting, I think that's where the blood liquid biopsy can really be uh, helpful uh, in, in sort of monitoring and see if there's any evidence of any of this micrometastatic uh, disease um, that may be giving off some molecules that we can detect in the blood. The other thing that, you know, it's imprecise, uh, but we, we can look at the original size of the tumor and the location of the tumor. Was it involving the ciliary body and so forth? And we can at least have an educated guess about whether uh, a patient was in a high-risk group or, or a low-risk group. So we, we do use that sort of information too. Yeah. I personally err on the side of caution. So if I have a patient who did not get a tumor biopsy and, and, and a prognostic test, I will tend to assume that they're at higher risk. Even though they may not be, I will assume that they're at higher risk in terms of doing more frequent surveillance, um, you know, checking their liver uh, either with an MRI or an ultrasound and maybe checking their lungs a couple of times a year with a chest X-ray. All right. Um, so Susie Wolf asked um, before we got started, is there a reason for a doctor to object if the patient wants to continue the MRI frequency after five years? 
meaning that the doctor will continue to continue the Rx every six months at the patient's request. I do that. Uh, I, I definitely do that. Um, so, you know, we do not have hard evidence that says that you must do the MRI every, you know, six months. And we certainly don't have hard evidence that you can stop it at five years. Uh, now, five years is kind of a, a, a special number in cancer because it's sort of used as a benchmark for if you're five years out, you're considered cancer free. But we know that that's not 100% true. You know, it's it, statistically, you're in a much better shape if you make it five years and you've not had your cancer recur, for sure. That's a great sign. But it's not a guarantee that it'll never come back. So um, I have a conversation with patients at five years. I, I, I certainly strongly encourage surveillance through five years. And at five years, we have a discussion. And if I have a patient who is in a, in a high-risk group, I say, this is great news. You've made it five years. You may be in that cured fraction that I pointed to in the earlier graph that never develops metastatic disease, even though they're in that high-risk group. But we don't know you're in that group for sure. So some people, they really, uh, they really agonize over getting the metastatic uh, testing. And, and, and others, they're really reassured by it. So I, I have a conversation with them and we decide together, you know, if they say, no, I really am reassured when I get that testing, then we keep doing it. But there's no hard science that says, oh, no, no, you have to stop after five years. So Julie here in the chat asked, she said, I have a tumor sample. Where can I get it tested for Perun? The PRAIM test is really available through uh, Castle Biosciences. And it's usually offered, it, it's really offered free as an add-on to the Decision DXUM test, which is the gene expression profile test that renders a class one or class two uh, result by simply asking that it be uh, added as an add-on, um, uh, they will run the PRAME test. Now, if we'll say that your uh, sample was taken in the past, you know, some people got a biopsy, some people had their eye removed. Let's say that the eye was removed and that sample is sitting in a pathology laboratory somewhere, that, that you could request that that sample be sent to Castle to have a PRAME determination. Um, if the if it was a biopsy, depending on how it was um, accessed, um, it, 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 there may still be enough sample that that could be sent to Castle. Um, if your sample was originally sent to Castle and they did not do PRAME, but they just told you if you were class one or class two, you can ask that they go back and run the PRAME test. Great, thank you. Um, Julie Curl, or Gina Curl asked earlier, um, she said she was diagnosed with OM in early 2019. She had radiation plaque therapy and they said that the tumor was dead. They found multiple METs in January, 2021. They haven't been able to obtain a biopsy with initial surgery because it started bleeding. So she's currently undergoing chemoblastization in PA it's her second treatment today. Very new to all of this info coming to her, and she's had a couple of genetic tests. Is there more specific testing that anyone should be getting to determine the next moves if the initial biopsy is inconclusive? Well, I mean, first of all, I should just make it clear that I cannot give 
personal medical advice to individuals, but I can make general uh, statements uh, in this forum here. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if in, there are two situations. There's a situation where you've had your eye cancer treated, but you have not developed metastatic disease. And how do I get prognostic information in that setting? And we, we talked about that. We can sort of guess based on the size and location. Uh, in the near future, we'll have blood liquid biopsy that will help. But I think what you're talking about is in the metastatic setting where you've already developed metastatic disease, um, what other information can be helpful? And and, and there are a number of things that, that are uh, helpful. Um, and number one, uh, we should probably just talk about immunocore at this point. There's this new drug, uh, uh, Tebi is what it's being called, uh, which is, uh, it's a, it's an immune therapy that targets, uh, cancer and melanoma cells in particular. And, uh, it had a very positive result, uh, in clinical trials and uh, everybody's expectation is that it's going to be approved, uh, for use outside of clinical trials. Um, this year, sometime this year. Now, the caveat is you have to have a certain blood uh, test to qualify. It's something called HLA A um, uh, uh, A201. Uh, the main thing is it's a it's a type of um, uh, immune marker that we all have, but we vary from person to person. So, about thirty-five to forty percent of people that get ocular melanoma will have the correct HLA type. Um, so that is a test that, you know, patients that get metastatic disease or they're in a high risk group, increasingly uh, their medical oncologist is ordering this test to see if they have the correct HLA type that would allow them to get the immunocore drug, you know, if, uh, if, if, the, if the circumstances dictate. Um, beyond that, it's important to know if you have these mutations that we've talked about. Um, you know, the class one, class two doesn't, that really applies to the eye cancer, right? It tells you whether it's likely to spread or not. Once it has spread, then it doesn't really help you that much to know if it was class one or class two. So that's not as important, but the mutations are very important. There's two major mutations that are associated with metastasis. We already talked about one, BAP1. So if you have a BAP1 mutation, and the vast majority of people with metastatic disease are going to have BAP1 mutation. Um, the, the other minority of patients, are, most of them are going to have a mutation in a gene called SF3B1. And um, those probably differ in their response to different uh, types of therapy. So we're starting to discover certain uh, drugs that may target uh, BAP1 mutations. I talked about one uh, from our research, this HDAC inhibitor called Quisinostat. Um, there are others, other drugs called PARP inhibitors. There's a trial right now, uh, a multicenter trial looking at PARP inhibitors for patients with BAP1 mutations. For SF3B1, it, probably it's going to be different uh, drugs that are going to be effective in that population. So. Um, it can be very helpful to get uh, mutation testing from, let's say, a, one of the metastatic tumors. If they do a biopsy to show that it is metastatic disease, they will often go ahead and run what we call a mutation panel 
to look at a panel of different genes to see if they have uh, mutations. And, and, and at much lower frequencies, some other common genes can be mutated, genes that are not often seen in, u in uveal or ocular melanoma, but you know, usually they're seen in lung cancer or breast cancer or common cancer. Rarely you can get one of these in, a, in an ocular melanoma. So it's important to know that too, in case there's a drug that's known to work in that setting. So generally we see medical oncologists getting um, a mutation panel uh, from a tumor sample to see if there's a, what we call a druggable mutation that there's a drug available for. We're going to get through as many questions as we can now. Remember, this is not going to be the first time that we have this type of talk. So we'll have several of these and um, we'll hopefully be able to answer your question. So we have a question here from Jack. He's asking, do you currently have research underway looking for targeted therapies that may make castle type 2 mutations less aggressive? Yes, that is exactly the goal of the little uh, vignette that I gave you that resulted in this drug, Quizinostat. Um, so we, we actually did a high-throughput drug screen based on the ability of drugs to reverse the effects of class two, you know, BAP1 mutations and class two tumors. So this Quizinostat, at least in the laboratory, can reverse melanoma cells from class two to class one. So that was, uh, that was like the big, uh, screening uh, criteria uh, that we found this drug with. And, um, the, the, you know, that, that's exactly what we're testing in, uh, in this clinical trial that's coming up is can we convert those class two tumor cells that might be hiding in the liver that's too small to see yet, can we switch them to class one? And part of the reason we think that class one tumors are less aggressive is that they can be seen by the immune system. Getting back to how important the immune system is, we think that part of the reason class two tumors are so aggressive is that they trick the immune system. They, they mm -hmm. kind of hide, they become invisible to the immune system. And if the immune system gets close, they sort of poison it, they shut it down. Whereas the class one tumors don't seem to be able to do that. And it all seems to be related to BAP1. So if we can reverse the effects of BAP1, maybe we can uh, stop the, the, the cancer cells from evading the immune system. So is this related to the Verostat? Verenostat. Verenostat, thank you. A science yeah. lesson for me today too. <laughs> yeah, so Verenostat is also an HDAC inhibitor. HDAC is a, is a uh, type of uh, molecule in the body. Um, and um, there are a number of HDAC inhibitors. Uh, HDAC inhibitors have been around for a long time, but it turns out that there are at least nine uh, different HDACs, uh, and they're not all the same, um, and uh, um, different HDAC inhibitors. Varenostat has been around for a while, um, and Varenostat targets certain HDACs better than other HDACs, and it seems to hit some of the HDACs in ocular melanoma pretty well. So I think um, that has been the best rationale I, that we've had uh, for uh, adjuvant therapy in class two tumors is to use the Varenostat um, to keep the, uh, the HDAC activity, um, the HDAC inhibitors down, okay? Um, the idea with the Quisinostat is can we 
even improve on that? Can we find uh, an HDAC inhibitor that's even more optimized for the particular HDACs um, that we find in, in, in ocular melanoma? So it's, it's, I would say they're in the same class, uh, but we're hoping that Cuisinostat will be even more effective. So Linda's asking, um, she said, I qualified for the pre-run study until we found out I had a gene mutation for blood clots. Can I not do this treatment and have blood, a blood thinner regimen? Well, um, well, first of all, I, you know, again, I can't give personal uh, medical advice. And also I'm not a medical oncologist, I'm an ocular oncologist. Um, and I'm not sure exactly which um, study you're talking about. There, there are um, several different uh, PRAME uh, drugs, uh, PRAME-directed drugs um, out there. Um, but uh, I, I would just speak to a medical oncologist uh, about that, but I would not be able to give you any more specific advice. So by the end of this, I'll be able to say all of those things correctly. So praying. <laughs> um, so Jim Horton's asking, um, he said his local oncologist has indicated the need for a foundation one CDX test. Is that test a blood test or a tissue test? And is it useful in the strategic management of uveal melanoma? Right. So the um, I'm not sure exactly. You know, they uh, they have a liquid biopsy test too, but I'm assuming you're referring to the the, the tumor based test. This would be one of these mutation panels that I mentioned. So Foundation One is probably the best known uh, mutation panel. It looks at a, several hundred genes. Um, most of them are not usually involved in ocular melanoma, but it does have uh, some of the genes that are involved in ocular melanoma. Um, but, but it can also look for kind of rare one-off mutations that sometimes can arise in melanoma and can be druggable or can have a drug that, that you can use to treat them. Um, so I'm assuming that this is from a tumor biopsy. Now, you know, the typical situation would be a patient who's developed a, 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 you know, a, a lesion in the liver or something like that, and then you get a biopsy. They say, yes, it is melanoma, and then they send a sample of that out to Foundation One or a company like that. And then they come back and say, yes, it has these three mutations and this one might be druggable with this particular drug and so forth. Um, but that, that uh, I'm assuming is probably, the, that's the most common situation where somebody would use Foundation One. And I think, yes, it is of some value. All right, um, the next question is, I was not offered the Castle test in Canada but had the test that showed mono C3. I know that there's a blood test that also shows risk, but at a high cost. Do you foresee that there will be advancements to better predict the risks of met uh, metastasis in the absence of early tumor tests? Yes, and we've, we've mentioned that a little bit. You know, I think that one of the goals, you know, it's, it's, um, there, you know, there, there are a number of tests out there. Some are better than others. Some are better validated than others. Some are more accurate than others. And, um, you know, uh, a lot of times patients only find out in retrospect what they didn't get and so forth. So a big part of liquid biopsy, I think, is trying to fill that gap for patients who didn't get optimal testing at baseline. 
Um, and, and, th and that's a major goal. I'm actually writing a grant right now. And that's the exact goal of this grant is to be able to look at blood uh, and at least come close to the accuracy of the Castle test that, that we're talking about here. So I think that's probably a couple of years off, but, um, but, but I don't think it's a long ways off. Um, all right, so I have a, a couple more here. So um, Foundation One versus Paris. Is there a preference for where to send liver biopsies for analysis? Is there a difference? I think that um, you know I I, I, uh, I would say in general that they're they're the, the care, they're both very good you know um, I, I wouldn't pick one over the other uh, I think they they a lot of the genes that they look at overlap you know there's there's only um, a certain number of genes it's probably on the order of four or five hundred genes that are known to be involved in cancer uh, and these panels mostly pick the same genes. They may have minor differences, um, but I think I think both of them are very good. I wouldn't I wouldn't pick one over the other. All right. Um, so this person has one has one Mets tumor that is growing oh so slowly, and that's the exact medical term they said oh so slowly. Is is an explosion to multiple tum tumors possible, or do I have to wait for this princess to fatten up? <laughs> Um, so, you know, again, I can't give personal advice to, to patients, but, um, and it depends on where the tumor is located. Uh, sometimes doctors will, you know, the, the place where they're most aggressive is in the liver. Um, so the liver, you know, we tend to be, you know, much more, um, you know, once they get to the liver, they love it there, you know, and once they start to take off. Uh, they, they like the liver. Now, some other locations, they can be quite indolent. You know, you can get a spot in the lung that will grow very, very slowly over a long period of time. So it's actually controversial um, whether, you know, how to treat that. You know, do you, if it's only a solitary spot in the lung or some other indolent location, do you, you surgically remove it? Do you put them on chemotherapy? Not chemo, but, you know, immunotherapy. Um, or do you watch it? Uh, and I don't think that we have definitive scientific evidence to, to say that one is right and one is wrong. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, in, in general, I think it makes sense if there is local disease, uh, local limited disease to try to treat it locally. And then, you know, when you have more widespread disease to treat it more systemically. Mm -hmm. Um, how can we get insurance companies up to date on OM? Cigna treats OM as skin cancer and denies all scans. Yeah, um, it's a it's a challenge. Um, uh, it, it, it's sort of an ongoing educational effort, and and I'll say, um, you know, for example, when 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 Castle first started and. You know, I have the disclosure slide. I invented the technology that Castle is using. Uh, when they first started, uh, the reason I, I uh, agreed to work with them is they said they wouldn't charge patients. If they couldn't get reimbursed, they would eat the cost. And they did a lot of tests um, until they finally got insurance companies to start paying for it. And it took a long time and a lot of effort, a lot of, you know, doctors having to call 
insurance companies and explain why it's important and why it's not ocular. It's not a skin melanoma. It's a different kind of melanoma. Um, so it, it takes a lot of efforts uh, to get these things done. Um, I really see the collaborative ocular oncology group as playing an important role here um, in educating uh, patients, educating other doctors, educating insurance companies, educating Medicare. You know, as a group, if we're all working together as a group and they say, wow, you know, 85% of patients in the United States and Canada are being seen in this group, this, that gives us leverage to talk to the insurance companies and say, hey, look, this isn't skin melanoma. This is something else. We, we need you to pay attention and to change your policies. So I have a couple more questions. The next one is how sh how should Castle Bioscience genetic test results be interpreted in conjunction with a tumor's largest basal diameter? Also, do you have any insight into whether a 12 millimeter point is somehow magic or significant, or if there is a, more of a continuum where a smaller smaller is better or, and larger is worse? This person has been doing their reading. I can tell. <laughs> It's a great question. So, um, you know, what when I started doing research in this area 15 years ago, what we wanted to do is minimize uh, the need for measurements that are imprecise. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is when you if you rely on a diameter, it's, it's actually if you get five doctors, five experts in ocular melanoma to tell you the diameter of a tumor, you're going to get five different measurements. <laughs> They're not going to be, you know, 50% off, but they're going to be 10 to 20% off from each other. Same with thickness. A ciliary body, you know, if it involves a ciliary body, that increases the risk. But five doctors would disagree on what constitutes ciliary body involvement. So uh, we really wanted to develop a test that was as um, precise as possible, that didn't require human... Um, uh, opinion uh, and human interpretation. So uh, having said that, we did see, you know, after, you know, the, the class one, class two thing, um, you know, after you've looked at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of patients, thousands now, you, you do start to see that, you know, there, there seems to be a break. Let's just take the class two patients. Those are the ones at highest risk. Um, there do, you know, patients with a really small class two tumor, they seem to, you know, at least at three years or five years, they have a much lower metastatic rate than those with a bigger class two tumor. And so we and several other groups independently looked at this and said, is there some size, um, you know, is, is there like a continuum where, si you know, uh, size is like a linear thing. You know, if you're class two and 12 millimeters, you're here and then 14, 16, 18. It doesn't seem to work like that. It seems to be a kind of, it's not magic, but there is some kind of inflection point around 12 millimeters. And, you know, I hate to even use such a precise term because, again, you know, what does it mean if you're 11.5 millimeters or if you're 12.1 millimeters? Is it really, you know, or 11.9 millimeters? You know, it's, it's not like that. It's not that precise, but there is some kind of biological inflection point around 12 millimeters where the risk goes up. And it, and it may not be a step function where it just goes all the way up, but it, it's not linear either. It's, it's, mm. it's a pretty, 
pretty quickly after 12 millimeters and it goes down pretty quickly uh, short of 12 millimeters. So um, we do use 12 millimeters as a kind of rule of thumb. If you're class two and you have a diameter that's clearly under 12 millimeters, we don't recommend a clinical trial because your risk is still pretty uh, relatively low. Whereas if you're over 12 millimeters in class two, we do you know, encourage patients to uh, explore potential clinical trials. Thank you. Um, so I have three more questions and I'm hoping that they'll be quick. Okay. So this, well, fingers crossed. So would you recommend the castle test for conjunctival melanoma? And if so, what types of results will there be? And would there be a prognosis factor to show whether they're at high risk for metastasis? The simple answer is we don't know the answer to that. Um, it will, it, you know, cutaneous, I mean, um, conjunctival melanoma has mutations that are similar to cutaneous melanoma, not the ones that we see in uveal melanoma. So you see BRAF mutations, NRAS mutations, things like that. Um, so uh, probably it would be a test similar to the castle cutaneous test, not the uveal uh, test. But that simply, that research has not really been done in an adequate way to know uh, how to use such a test in, in conjunctival melanoma yet. Thank you, and thank you for the correction. I, I'm telling you, I'm gonna be, you know, so much more versed in these terms. So two more quick questions. Number one, why can't we donate blood? I've never heard of anyone getting OM through tainted blood. Yeah, it's a good question. Just in general, uh, there's this rule that you can't donate blood or donate organs if you've had cancer. Uh, usually it's within five years. Um, there are these rare but real um, stories from the past. There's, there are stories where somebody who had ocular melanoma 20 years ago donated a kidney and the kidney recipient developed metastatic ocular melanoma. So this has happened. That, that's why people worry about this. Um, yeah. That's really interesting. So last question, and then I'm going to bring Melanie on so we can say good night is what is the most important thing you've learned from your past studies that have shaped the direction of your future studies? Well, that's that's great. Well, for, first of all, I think that um, the patients, every, every advance that we've been able to make has been completely dependent on patients being willing to participate and to help people that are coming after them. And we're continuing to do that. We still ask patients to enroll to allow us to study their blood, to study their aqueous fluid, to study, you know, to continue to, to improve. So uh, this is a partnership between the patients and the doctors. And um, that's probably the most important thing. Uh, but also, you know, I had a lot of people telling me this can't be done. Everybody with ocular melanoma is gonna die and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, biopsies are gonna kill people. It's dangerous, it's this, it's that. And all of that's proven to be not true. Biopsies are very safe if they're done by an expert who's done lots of them. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we can uh, save people, we can improve survival, we can uh, improve outcomes in ocular melanoma. So uh, I've learned not to listen to those who say it can't be done. Well, I'm going to bring Melanie back in. And um, we just want to thank you, Dr. Harbour, for being here. And Melanie, was there anything else you wanted to say before we say goodnight? 
No, just thank you as always. We really appreciate all your help and everything you do for the OM community, and we can't thank you enough. Um, we're hope to, we hope as a Kieran site is going to be able to uh, fund some more of your research again soon. That's definitely on the table. So um, we're excited and glad that we can at least take our donations and contribute towards your work. Well, it's, it's made a world of difference, absolutely. And we're just about to publish something that you all funded that's going to be revolutionary. So we'll, we'll talk more about that soon. Oh, well, that's great. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate everyone who tuned in and um, check our Facebook page. We hope to have more of these for you soon. Thanks, everybody. Hey, Melanie, um, really yes. quickly, if anyone wants to give a donation to continue helping with the research, where can they make that donation? They can make it at the um, akirinsight.org. There's an actual link on the donation page that donates directly to Dr. Harbor's research. So if you want to donate directly to him, go to the donation page and scroll down a little bit and there's a box that says donate to Dr. Harbor. And then anything that comes in for that, um, under that donation button will be directed to his research. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast. Please make sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. Feel free to follow us on Facebook or on Instagram at Acure Insight. Thanks so much and have a wonderful day.